Hello everyone, welcome to the Melting Pot podcast. I'm your host Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at dominicmonkhouse.com. Today, I'm talking to Chris Barras-Brown from Upping Your Elvis. We find out why the company's named Upping Your Elvis. We also talk about his mission to help us all to understand that we have a creative genius inside of us, how to manage our energy, how to stop sleepwalking through our working lives. And we also talk a bit about his latest passion, which is Talk It Out, which is a social enterprise having an impact on mental health. Had a great conversation with Chris. He's full of energy and sparkle as always. I hope you enjoy it. So, uh, hello everybody. I'm Chris Barras-Brown. I'm the founder of Upping Your Elvis. And uh, my business helps organizations get better energy into their work so that it becomes more fun and more easy. Uh, the name was inspired by Bono. So when he was doing his third world debt campaign, he used to go into organizations and he wanted to work out who to play with really quickly. So he used to ask what I think is a fantastic question. He used to ask, who's Elvis around here? Now, whenever I ask that question, people can answer it immediately. Because what you're really asking is, who here's a bit more of a brand, a bit more of a maverick. They've got good energy about them. They love to break the rules and they have great fun doing it. And I know fundamentally that business needs more Elvis now more than ever. And I also know fundamentally that we all have a bit more Elvis to bring to play. So what we do is we help organizations as diverse as your kind of Unilever's, Coke's, Nike's, to uh, your ad agency networks, to big pharma and finance. We help them bring more of that Elvis to play every day. Who's your client? I mean, it's not the right at the top. It's some sort of subdivision, some maverick who wants to do something different with their team, is it? Um, it, it really depends. I mean, I've, I've just had the last six months working with one client where it was the CEO and they were going through a change program and um, they had all the process and infrastructure change going on, but they didn't have the behavioral component and the leadership component. So in that case, we worked through the board and through three and a half thousand people uh, sponsored by the CEO. And, you know, that's, that's quite a meaty process. But equally, we'll do teams. We do, we do a lot of helping teams play better together. Usually when um, they're new, they've got a new remit, they've got a new boss, maybe they're slightly dysfunctional, um, and we come in and help, help work with them. And that tends to be more senior. But then we do everything from that to kind of events. I'm, I'm off to Davos tomorrow to do um, a 30 or 40-minute session for Nike over there. And then I'm off to D-Scoop in Florida um, the day after that to do you know, 4,000 people. So it varies. When, you are, when you're working with organizations and you say the team is dysfunctional, what, what types of things are you doing with a team and how, is that, how do you see that sort of dysfunctionality showing up in the first place? Well, to be honest, I don't identify the dysfunctionality. That's usually done by somebody else who phones me. Usually what tends to happen is they, they tend to be working a bit more in silos. There might be a relationship issue and maybe they spend too much time doing, doing the wrong things. 
but usually there is something that's a little bit wasteful going on. As far as how we deal with that, um, I suppose there's, there's three main stages to it. The first one is to tune them up to what energy is for themselves as a leader and, and indeed for the team. So there's an awareness stage because without awareness, you don't get any choice. Once you've got the awareness, then you can start to say, okay, so what can we do now to increase the, uh, the energy that we have in the team or indeed turn what is negative into something more positive? And then it's all about how do you deploy it? How do you make sure that that energy is actually used in a useful way? For example, it's amazing how many times people have meetings and about 15 minutes in, they realize they've got no idea why they're there, what their role is, what their behavior should be, what the vision of success looks like. And then they wonder why it's quite difficult to actually get the output that they're excited by. So it's simple stuff about just making sure that every interaction counts. Now, if you've got good energy, you've got to deploy it in a way that's going to have some efficiency. There are some clients I work with and we have a conversation about should you take laptops into a meeting? Some people have argued strongly that they should because it's the only time when they get any work done, sitting at the back and not making a contribution. <laughs> it's just they're the worst meetings in the world. So that energy, negative energy, what, what types of things are you, are you helping them reduce in their behavior that's driving the negative energy? So it could be all sorts of things. I mean, you know, at a, at a base level, we're all negative. We've actually got a negativity bias that's hardwired into our brain. That, that, explain, that explains a lot. It, it does. And it doesn't matter who you are and how you know, groovy and hippie and creative you are. You've still got it. I mean, I've, I've been doing um, you know, innovation work for over 20 years now. And I, I, I still can't help myself being in sessions where we're coming up with new ideas for the future. I'm going, that is absolute rubbish. And that's what goes on. <laughs> help it the key thing is that you've got to learn how to how to manage that little bit of feedback in your own head and not articulate it to everyone else and actually use it as stimulus but we can't help it because our brains only developed by about 10 percent in the last 50,000 years so we, what we've developed is a fantastic mechanism to help us survive basically if i see a bush you know shaking over in the distance i just assume it's a big bear and it's going to come and eat me and you know nine times out of ten it could be you dom you know after coming back from a forage with a, a basket full of fruit but the one time it's a bear, I'm delighted that I had a negativity bias because I've reacted to it in a fight, flight, freeze way. Now, super useful 50,000 years ago, but obviously we've got the same programming in our head now. But obviously we're not, we're not worried about saber-toothed tigers today. What we tend to react to in a subconscious and immediate fashion is anything new. New people, new strategies, new offices, new ideas. And therefore, it doesn't matter who you are as a leader, you have to overcome that negativity that you've got in your head. And it takes some practice. It takes some work. Like I said, I still react to things negatively and I always will because it's part of my survival instincts. It's just, I know how to deal with it now. And is there a cultural overlay on top of that as well? Is you work around the world. Do you see the UK as more hardwired negative than the US or? I don't think anyone's hardwired more negatively because Ultimately, you know, we're all, we're all people, we're all humans, and we therefore have the same brain makeup. I think what you will find is that some people will deal with that in a more culturally specific way. So there are certain countries where actually being quite critical of ideas is more the sport and other places are a little bit more supportive. Mm -hmm. And you will find also that there are certain organizations that you work with where they're more predisposed for negativity. I've just been working with a big financial group. And basically, if you're an actuary and your job is to basically mitigate risk and understand it, then guess what? You are programmed to see what the dangers can be and you're very good at it. <laughs> so, so you can certainly develop more skills around it. Yeah, so they've picked you because whatever the spectrum is, that's your natural proclivity is looking at risk. 
and uh, and perceive and perceiving risk. Absolutely. The, the more you can help people understand why they are reacting to things in a very subconscious way that might be quite difficult as far as business practice is concerned, they can see that actually just by taking a breath, stepping back from it and actually turning that, that reaction into a conscious response, then actually you've got a bit more choice and you've got a bit more positive energy to play with. And it, it takes a bit of practice. You know, it's not stuff that you just click your fingers and it's done because it's so ingrained in who we are. We, we really need to learn to play with it. And what sort of deliberate practice do you get do you get people to do? Is it just an awareness and you're getting you're trying to get the team to help each other out or is there Yeah, I mean awareness is the first point, Dom. I mean w- without that you don't go very far. But there are certain things that you can do that will just buy you a bit more time. People have a wry smile on their face when I say this. They say that it can't be that easy. But I I've I've had twelve CEOs downstairs in my house for a week. And at the end of the week I've said, What's your biggest learning? And at least fifty percent will say Breathing, Chris, breathing. And actually, most people don't breathe uh, very well. They have to breathe, obviously. It's, it's kind of useful for life. But they, they breathe in such a way that they starve their brains of oxygen. And therefore, it's very hard for them to get clarity. And the fastest way to make sure that you get off a subconscious reaction and get into a conscious response is to breathe well. So when you notice that you're having quite a visceral reaction to something and you, you notice that you're being quite judgmental and critical, taking a massive breath with a big smile on your face is one of the quickest ways to kind of interrupt that pattern. Now that's one of the simpler ones. It's profound, but it's simple, but there's lots of things that you can do just to depressure the situation and give yourself a bit of space to get the perspective that you need. And is that, is that the same in terms of dealing with difficult people? Is it, is that, if that works for any sort of fight and flight reflex? It does. Yeah. I mean, you know, one a key trigger for a lot of people is conflict. And therefore, difficult people tend to trigger people quite a lot. And the key thing is to notice you've been triggered and just depress yourself. Just get that cortisol and adrenaline down in your body. Otherwise, the heart rate keeps going up. You can't focus in your brain. You start to you know, get ready for the fight, flight, freeze response. And you don't get any choice because you know, that comes at you like a, like a train. And you, just go, and you just go into that learned behavior loop. Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> we've seen it so many times, haven't we? I mean, how many email wars have you seen just because somebody <laughs> caps lock? People often just do that kind of stuff. And it happens a lot in meetings. It happens when we're doing stuff that we really care about, right? So the more you care about the work that you're doing and the more change that's going on in the work that you do, the more primed you are going to be to have these reactions. So actually, if you're in a quite a dynamic business, this is going to be going on quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And you work, you work predominantly with large enterprise? Mm-hmm. We and tend to. The smallest business I've worked with um, is a lovely little cold water surf company called Finisterre out in Cornwall, who are, who are friends of ours. They're kind of under 50, but most of the ones that we're working with are in the tens or indeed hundreds of thousands. And that must pose a particular challenge, particularly when you're thinking about maybe purpose or core values and those things aren't necessarily nailed down. They're just sort of the business has got a culture because it's got a culture and not because it's been deliberately, perhaps with the exception of somewhere like Nike, where they've got a really clear, clear take on it. But lots of the other businesses you work with must be sort of large masses of people sort of unfocused. Well, it can be that way. I mean, I think the last 10 years it's changed significantly. One of the things that we are massive advocates of is understanding energy a key component of energy we would call spiritual energy, which for us is, we were not talking about religion there, we're talking about a sense of connection. 
And it could be a sense of connection to myself. Um, I, you know, I'm doing stuff that I really believe in because it's on my values. It could be a sense of connection mm-hmm. to the people I'm working with. It could be a sense of connection to a bigger purpose, you know, for that organization. Most of our clients now have spent, you know, a fair amount of time thinking about what those purposes are, how it links to the values, how it mm-hmm. works to the behavioral framework. Because they just know that if they don't do that, it's going to be it's going to be relatively random. I don't tend to do that work myself anymore. I I, I used to used to do it, but what I, I'm more interested in now is actually working with the individuals and what their values are and their purpose and how that actually meets the team that they're working in. And sometimes the teams are larger, but you know, often often I'm working with the leadership team. So you know, you're only looking at about twelve people then, and actually you can make those linkages pretty strong pretty quickly. Okay. You, we spoke before we were uh, before we were recording about some work that you're doing in the mental health space. Is that you're you're giving back, or this is a a new piece of work you're doing, or it's a new piece of work that actually is on the foundation of a couple of decades, really. So there is a creative tool that we have, have taught thousands of people around the world. It's one of our favourites. It's called Talk It Out, and it works a very simple way. You you basically grab a buddy. One of you talks flat out about whatever it is you're working on as the other one just listens. And the combination of walking, which, which basically makes us, MIT reckons, up to 60% more creative when we walk and talk. And the fact that you're just going deep into one subject. And actually, as you run out of conscious things to say, you just keep going. The combination of those two things mean that you get great insights, you get great ideas, uh, but you get loads of clarity. And what we found after teaching people this technique many, many times is that people often come back and say, you know what, I got all those things, but more importantly, I just feel better. So we partnered up with the University of Bristol. And what we found is that by walking and talking and using Talk It Out, which is quite a short process, people feel happier. They feel as if a weight lifts off their shoulders. They feel as if they are less alone and they get more clarity about who they are and how they should use their energy. So uh, we're, we're determined to get it out to as many people as we can. Uh, our working target is 10 million people in the next three years. So it's quite punchy. But so far, the feedback has been fantastic. So we've set that up as, as a, a community interest company. So it, it's, it is like a charity to us. We're funding. We won't make any money of it. It's all getting it out there for free. And what we're looking for is partners to help us make it bigger. So if there's an organization out there who is saying, you know, we need to do more for our people to help them do for their minds as we know what to do physically. You know, we're great with nutrition. We're great with, with, with sleep. We're great with exercise for our bodies. This is the equivalent for your mind. If you're interested in something like that, then, then do let us know. Look up Talk It Out, and we would love to help you. And the well, MIT said you're, we're more creative when we're walking. Was there any what's – the, what's the sort of rationale for that? Well, we all process kinesthetically. So, you know, I'm, I, don't, I don't know how, how, how you work, but I can't think sitting down. If I need to think, I mean, I've got a standing desk. That's what I'm at now. And, and here I am at my standing desk talking to you, right? Exactly. You know, if, if you want me to get stuck, just put me in one place for 10 minutes and see what happens. It's, it, you know, my brain shuts down and, and I'm not alone. A lot of us process way better when we have movement. And we've known this for years, haven't we? It's, it's the pedagogic way of processing. I mean, if you go back to... You know, ancient philosophers um, in, in Greece, you know, they used to walk and talk to process. Everybody has done it at some point who is, you know, is famous for, you know, thinking, for creativity, for being an author. You know, the kind of the walking thinking practice has been, has been a big part of, of, you know, humanity. All we're doing is taking what is quite an ancient process of kind of walking and thinking and bringing with it a bit of modern day psychology, which means that we shift through the kind of the 5% of our 
conscious processing to access more of that 95% subconscious, knowing that actually that's where the genius lies. And when we do that, we will make better connections. And we'll also have a chance to tap into a lot of the emotions that we might not understand. And yet they're a very important part of our processing. And obviously, the more articulate we can become about our emotions and how we're making sense of the world, the healthier we become. And well, I just like the idea of doing it with somebody so that there's a silence that you have to fill. And also the other person's busy. Mentally, they're busy because they're walking. Looking forward to trying that. Yeah, well, it's great. Yeah, there's a few things in there that we didn't realize were so important. So those things that you've just identified, absolutely key. Another one that makes a huge difference is actually the fact that you walk shoulder to shoulder, side by side, but you're not looking at each other. You're just kind of walking and witnessing the other people, um, just kind of uh, having their lovely subconscious kind of outpouring. And actually, it just means that it's just a lot easier for people to do. We've tried it on our own. We've tried it with dictaphones. We've tried it in all sorts of different ways. And having just somebody there to witness what we're doing makes all the difference. Well, that whole, uh, it's sort of very human, isn't it, to want to be listened to. I'm saying some, what I, are deep thoughts to me and, and somebody's witnessing. Yes. It, it, changes, it changes your relationship with it as well as theirs. It's an important way that we process. It's also important in the fact that, you know, a lot of people find that they feel as if they've got a more meaningful connection to that person than at the start. So if you're doing it as a team, it's great for relationships. I was reading um, Bruce Daisy's book the other day, which is, I think is fantastic, The Joy of Work, obviously because he's, he's featured some of my work in it, which makes me think it's amazing. Um, <laughs> But no, he's, but he's, he's done some brilliant research in it. And one of, the, one of the stats that I saw in there that was just flabbergasting was the idea that 42% of people in Britain don't have a friend at work, which is just frightening. We spend a third of our days on this planet at work. If we're not loving it and having proper, meaningful relationships with people, it's a terrible waste of life. And what we'll often find is from talking out, people feel a lot more connected to, to you know, their yes. teammates. And they feel as if, you know, they're less alone, which I think is, it's, it's a big issue right now on the planet. Just to pick up on that, I, I've often used Gallup's Q12, measuring emotional engagement in the team with a view to trying to help the team become a high-performing team. And one of the questions in their, in their Q12 is, I have a best friend at work. And often, often people snigger uh, when that question comes up and they think it's silly. And it's, it's just Gallup have found that in high-performing teams, people do have best friends at work. And, and I look back at some of, the, some of the best teams I've been in and I had friends and or best friends at work. And I mean, somebody said to me the other day, well, uh, I don't have a friend, but you don't have to like people to work with them. And I said, but wouldn't it be better if you did? Like, and maybe if they liked you too, that might be even more fun. I mean, just. Uh, it's amazing. I, do you know, I, I, I did an exercise, this is a few years ago. And it was an exercise that was all about helping people connect up at a slightly deep, deeper level. And there was a guy in the room who'd worked for this lady for at least two years. And I said, how was that exercise? And he said, um, it was great. I had no idea that she had children. <laughs> it's astonishing, but it happens a lot. It happens a lot because I think people at work just become so transactional. And, I, and I'm, a, I'm a huge fan that, you know, we need more humanity at work because if we do that, people will show up more confident in being themselves so they can self-express and take some risk and actually be them. And actually, guess what? When you're yourself, you've got more of a chance to do great work. Yes. What's the, what's the goal then for this uh, Walk It Out? You, you said you wanted to get it into the hands of 10 million, 10 million people. And other than reach, do you, do you have a sense of, you know, what you wanted, impact you wanted to have? 
Well, what we know is it works. So we know yeah. if people engage in it, it will help them on the way they feel about who they are and the lives they lead, and it will hopefully make it more shiny. So all we really need to do is just make sure that people are engaging in it in a positive way on a relatively regular basis. If I could get a group of people, regardless of how many, you know, doing it once a month and actually just sharing some stories with their friends and families and their local community of what it's done for them, I'm sure it will just steamroll anyway because it, it just works. It's got a universality about it, which is amazing. One of the reasons I love writing books is not the kind of sitting at a desk, obviously, and, and working hard. It's the fact that you have people who just reach out to you randomly from around the world going, you know, I read this bit and, and I've done this as a result and it's impacted my life in a positive way. And I love the idea that talking out just could have its own momentum and it could impact people in a way that's way more profound than reading the book. I mean, because it's practical stuff and it's about life and it's about the shit that matters. And I, I just hope that people engage in that. Well, I, I hope so too. I hope, I hope if you being on this podcast can get it into the hands of more people. What other practical tools have you got that we could share? Oh, beyond talking out. So, well, no, yeah. I mean, beyond beyond that, I mean, you know, we could talk about meetings or energy vampires or one of the things that we're deeply passionate about is experimenting with energy. So, we all know what it's like to have those great days when we, we you know, we go to work and we know, regardless of what happens, it's going to be a fantastic day. And we also know what it's like when we go to work and the fact we've run out of coffee is enough for emotional breakdown. You know, we're, <laughs> it's all too much for us, and we're the same person on both those days, but we'll have two very different experiences. So what we're into is working out how do you have more of those great days? How, how can you stack the deck so you have more of a chance to make sure that your en energy is brilliant regardless of the situation? And, um, and we've, we're experimenting with all sorts of things. So, um, so we, we believe to, to do good work around that, you need to be good physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And therefore, you know, talking out is a particularly good tool for processing emotion, but also getting mentally clear. And also there's a connectivity part to it. And because you walk, there's a physical energy. But what we've been experimenting with recently is how to get our energy up by tapping into all sorts of friends and experts around the world who, who have um, some brilliant insight into energy. So we're doing a different experiment um, every month this year. Uh, and we started off the year working on breathing with Michael Townsend, who's a fantastic expert on breath and mindfulness so we did our whole month of that then the, the next month we did on napping and learning how to sleep polyphasically instead of monophasically so topping up your your energy with a little nap is a wonderful i'm still addicted to that to be honest this this month we've been doing um uh, fasted fitness so exercising when you haven't eaten for preferably 14 to 16 hours uh -huh. it has quite an interesting impact on your overall energy levels i'm really enjoying that and I've got quite into the old Wim Hof uh, routine as well, the cold water breathing, which I've really enjoyed. So, so we're doing all these different experiments. And if anyone would like to take part, they're all online. You can join in. There's video support with it. And again, it's a bit of fun just to make sure that we're just topping up our own energy re reserves and we're having more deliberate choices every day on what works for us. So that's a great one to play with. And where, where can we find that? You can find that on the, on the Up In Your Elvis website. You just look at energy experiments on there and you'll find it. You can follow us on, um, on Instagram. Again, just look up Up In Your Elvis, we're there. And the Wim Hof stuff then, have you been diving in the ice or just cold showering? So I started last June, which is cheating, isn't it? Because all the water <laughs> around it, it's too warm. <laughs> so I started then and I started with cold showers. I did sea swimming 
every other day until about Christmas. And then um, I loved it so much, I had a cold water tub put in my garden. So I'm now using my cold water tub. Although I've, I've realized I haven't regulated it particularly well because the other day I was in there and I was going, I, I, this is too painful, I can't feel my hands. And it was one degree, <laughs> 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 which is a little bit fresh, but I'm, I'm loving it. So yeah, I mean, the good news is you, know, you can do the breathing anywhere. As long as you've got a cold shower, you, you know, your, your quid's in. I like the total immersion into proper cold water, though, because there's something about it that's way more visceral. And just learning to control. Again, look, it comes back to what you were saying before about uh, the fight and flight. You know, you drop into cold water and it's learning to control your reflex so that you can still breathe and not jump straight back out again. It is. And you, and you, you do learn that. But what I love uh, about it, and if you talk to um, lots of people who enjoy the cold water, there's this amazing clarity that comes and this incredible presence. And I think it's largely because your, body, your body's obviously gone into this complete panic. And when it actually deals with it, everything is serene. And all, I have a lot of friends, because I live in Lyme Regis, who, who swim in the water every single day of the year. I think they're going in at about quarter to seven in the morning at the moment, mainly wearing bobble hats and bikinis. So it's a proper cold water experience. And they are so hooked. I mean, they're super healthy. They've got loads of energy. They seem incredibly optimistic. And if they, if they miss a day swimming, they, they really feel it. So I know there's something quite good about the cold water, for sure. Uh-huh. Very good. All right. I'll look forward to uh, following your Instagram and joining in. Um, what, about, what about meetings? We talked a little bit about, about meetings. What, you've got some top tips on, on meetings to share? Well, I could give you a few quick ones. Um, what I, I always find amazing, and you know, because we're all about energy, it's astonishing how people make it harder for themselves than they need to. So, you know, the idea of booking a meeting from nine till 10, then another one from 10 to 11, it's fantasy. You either finish your nine till 10 at 9.45, or you can't start your 10 o'clock on time. It has to be a 10.15, but you have to be able to have some space to get to the next one. So people need to schedule their meetings very differently. I, I think back to back is just crazy. You're only going to be disappointed people and you're going to have a stress response after the first one, because you're going to be late for the rest of them all, all day long. So that is, scheduling makes a big difference. I never run hour-long meetings. I, I always go for odd times and have spaces in between, and it really helps get people more conscious so they're not on autopilot. As soon as somebody has an hour meeting in their diary, they just do what they did last time, and they switch off. So vary times. I think that's important. I also think you need a, a clear setup at the beginning, which I mentioned earlier. You know, Why are we here? How do we want to behave? How do we get the energy right? And I'd also finish good 20 minutes early and just spend some time going, okay, what was brilliant and what could be better? Just a tiny bit of debrief on feedback because you want to always want to constantly learn. And then, you know, just think about where you hold stuff. I mean, don't use offices that don't have tech around unless you need them. Sometimes we need tech, you know, for, for meetings, but most of the time we don't. Um, so go to a place that gives you the energy for the work you need to do. So those are a few of my top tips and always question if somebody invites you to a meeting, why do they need you there? If there's no objective, do not go. <laughs> Chris says, do not go. And the, the space thing, that's why, is that why you have CEOs down to your house just to try and different space, no tech, your setup, not theirs? Exactly, yeah. No, uh, environment has a massive impact, not only as far as stimulus is concerned, but obviously as state is concerned. And therefore, going to the right place for the work is really important. I mean, last week I had the terrible, terrible misfortune to have to go work in Bali. And um, it did have a, quite a good impact on the energy of the work, there's no doubt. Now, we can't always do barley, but we can always change what we've got. 
You know, even if you're working in meeting room 3B with a big boardroom table in there and no, no natural light, you can still make it feel better by moving furniture, by, you know, getting some music in, by doing something that just makes it feel a bit more human. So I'm a huge advocate of making sure that it sings for the work you need to do. I did. I, one of the things that I picked up in one of your books was take the tables out. No, you, you make the point that people behave differently if they're sitting and open as opposed to sitting behind a desk. And I thought, I thought that was something that uh, I could make use of straight away. It's a really easy one. I mean, you know, we tend to have tables to put stuff on. But, you know, if you look at it, what, what, what's the stuff we're putting on there that's so important? You know, another laptop. We, we, we don't need to be looking at tech all the time. Our coffee, that can go by our feet. People just hide behind them and use them as an energetic barrier. We're quite famous for doing it. We've, we were working with one of the leadership teams in Britvic years ago, and there must be 30 people in a room around a big, long table, and we made them dismantle the whole thing. And, and the look on their face was like, you are joking. We've been in here for most of the day, and now you're, you're, you're monkeying about and doing this. But the whole energy changed dramatically. It, you know, we switched from what was quite an analytical, logical, rational energy into something a lot more human and playful. So it's well worth going through the pain. Uh, good one. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is what your thoughts are on dealing with, I think what you term energy vampires and what I've referred to in the past as dippers. <laughs> Dementors. <laughs> Dementors, yes. Fix them, try and fix them. The hippie in me would say everyone deserves a second chance, right? People who are energy vampires, I, I don't think really they wake up in the morning going, I'm going to kill today's fun. I don't think that's what they do. I just think it's become quite ingrained in who they are. So I think giving them a chance to kind of understand the impact their behavior has on them, I think is the cool thing to do. But, you know, we've all done that a few times with some people and they've decided, no, they would like to stay negative. And quite frankly, my life is too short. My job is not to change people at all. But, you know, I think everyone is brilliant as they are. And if they choose to be brilliant in a negative way, then you, I let them carry on. I really do. The, the fastest way to get the energy back is to keep them out of the work that I'm doing. So I'm very happy to avoid them in those situations. And your advice to people who've got them, let them go and let, take their brilliance elsewhere. Well, you know, there was um, a piece of advice that was given by Dan Walker, who used to be the head of talent at Apple years ago. And I, I had uh, lots of teams I set up around the world and it was quite difficult to get the right talent in some of my, my further reach teams. And he said to me, Chris, I've got some top tips. I'm going, Dan, you're the head of talent at Apple, you know, bestow me with your knowledge. And he's like, Chris, it's simple. It's better to have a hole than an asshole. <laughs> and I, I know it's harsh and I'd never write that into HR policy, but he's absolutely right. If you've got somebody bringing down the energy of your group, yeah, who's, not working to the same standards as everyone else. If you get rid of them, everyone will thank you for it and they will raise their standards. So uh, I'm a huge believer in going for positive people. I surround myself with them and it means that every day has more rainbows and sunshine. <laughs> and unicorns. <laughs> exactly. Um, so what are you working on? Are you working on a new book at the moment? How many books have you written now? You've... I've done four. Just four? started the book proposal for number five which at the moment, the working title is The Fizz of Biz. It's all about getting the energy right in business. Very good. And when's that due out? Oh, well, no one's bought it yet. Right. <laughs> I would say usually, usually it's about an 18-month process. By the time okay. you get a publisher, you get it written, you get it edited, they do all the nice covers and they get it marketed. It usually takes 18 months. But this time, you know, I might, I might bypass 
some of those structures and see if we can speed it up because I'm quite into doing fast work. And are you in a position now where you enjoy writing a book? I love the process. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, what I don't like is all the kind of lining up publishers and getting all their salespeople to go yippee and all the internal politics that go with it. Because I like to make something beautiful and go, well, there you go, world. But, you know, the reality of it is that um, you, know, you have to go through that to get stuff out. I do find the whole industry slightly old-fashioned, I think I'd say. But, you know, the way things are changing right now, publishing is going to change dramatically in the next 10 years. And I think there are some people doing some really fun, funky things out there. For, for example, Unbound. I don't know if you've come across them. A mate of mine, Dan Kieran, is the CEO there. And they, they basically crowdfund books and they do it very efficiently with an amazing team and it it bypasses a lot of the struggles that people have and they they get to to write about the stuff that really counts and they love you know it doesn't have to go through 20 machinations where lots of people edit it and try and make it fit you know the mass market which i love yes rather to have some people love it and some people hate it than land in the middle exactly i, I much prefer to be polarizing of the books you've written do you have a personal favorite which one it's a good question. I mean, I, I love Wake Up, uh, How to escape, escape a Life of Autopilot, because, you know, we all get sucked into habits and routines. And it's a very simple, practical book that helps you break off them. It's my only consumer book. It's not a business book. It's, it's for life. And I, I love it for that. I think you mentioned Shine earlier on, which interestingly is probably the most practical leadership book that I've written. So, you know, I, a lot of, you know, my mates who work in the city actually use that, give that to their teams and, and make it a bit of a practical manual. So mm-hmm. that's good. Interestingly, my, my very first book, How to Have Kick-Ass Ideas, uh, still lives on many creative teams' tables and they use that as a way of inspiring ideas every day. And, that, and I wrote that in 2006. So that's, that's got some good legs. So the one that I'm missing out there is free, isn't it? So free is a hippie book and the hippies love it. <laughs> <laughs> When, you've, when you have, we were talking earlier about meetings and, and managing energy. When you have people down to Lyme Regis, and you've, you said earlier, you know, you had CEOs down for the week. How do you manage a day? How, what, how do you manage the energy through the day? Are there any tips? Because, you know, people might be off site for a strategy session or working with their teams and they've booked eight hours. What, what have you learned works in terms of so that you're not doing the normal nine to five and breaks and lunch and... What do you do differently? I'm one of these people that I'm a a huge fan of mornings for doing creative work. Anything that takes lots of engagement and a a bit more brain power, I'm a morning kind of guy. And I find that a lot of my clients are similar. So we tend to, you know, start maybe a little bit earlier and then finish a bit earlier generally. So I tend to, I'm I'm more of an eight to four guy than I'm a nine to five, certainly. We'll often do work out in nature. So we'll do talk it out on the beach down in Lyme Regis and it is amazing the difference that environment makes on people. Even we've had people down there in a gale force six and they're still doing it. And, you know, they come back ruddy faced, but very clear on where they're going. So using environments really important. And then for me, it's all about variety. Keep mixing things up. So you might do an hour and a half's worth of very deep work. And then we might do three things that are very light after that. So that it feels as if you're on a, a state roller coaster, as opposed to keeping it just static. And then and I'm a huge believer in giving them loads of love. So we're very lucky here. We've got some very good friends of mine who are very good cooks. So Mark Hicks is down here who, uh, who kindly looks after some food. River Cottage, cook at the house all the time. Giving them lots of love back in nutrition as well as, you know, the environment, I think helps people stay on form. And then we just keep them really, really sharp on things like phones and time. 
to make sure that not, things aren't wasted. And we don't let people get into debates because it doesn't help, right? So, so you know, we keep them on point. And actually the standard of their energy and the way they interact dictates how well you go. So keep them crisp and they will love you forever. And then let them go early. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing what you know now, and not with a sense of uh, regret or to try and change the past, but what is it that you know now or skills you have now that you, if you think back, God, I wish I'd known that then. What's the skill and what's the moment? I, I think physical energy and understanding how to manage that better, I never bothered looking at because I had so much of it. So I used to live on curries and beer when I was young and I never needed much sleep and I could just power through. If I'd have known what I know now and applied it then, my God, what I could have achieved. So I wish I'd have had a bit more of that going on. And I think it's for most of us, when we look back, there were moments in our lives, I think, where maybe we took things too seriously, you know, where we actually thought it was a game we had to win. And it's a lovely perspective that I have now, and I'm, and I'm lucky because we've done well, where I can go, it's just a bloody game. And if you're not enjoying every moment of that game, and you're not realizing that actually it's how you show up that counts, not actually what comes out as a result, you can only win. And it's a wonderful place to be. So I, I wish maybe I, I, there were times that I worked a little less hard a little less grind and a little bit more playfulness. Not that I took it too seriously all the time, but every now and again, I think those year ends, they probably made me a little bit more ferocious than I needed to be. Okay, very good. And what uh, you've, we've already mentioned uh, Bruce Daisley's Joy of Work, uh, and we've had a canter through the books that you've written. What other books or book have made an impact on your life that you think others should it's always such a tricky question. I always, I always have to feel like I've got to look at a bookshelf or reach for my Kindle. Turn, turn behind you. There are so many. <laughs> it's yeah. always tricky. So what have I got here that I really enjoyed? I mean, I, I love all sorts of stuff. So I, I tend to read quite broadly. So on here, there's um, a full catastrophe living, which a friend of mine gave to me, which I found fascinating. That's a very good book. I love um, John Parkins, Fuck It because there's just a very simple energy in it, which is, which is really good. And I, I can't fault that at all. Bruce Daisies is brilliantly researched. I've got to say he writes nicely, but it's so well researched. I've just really enjoyed the insights in that one. Well, I, I listen to it on Audible and sometimes the author reads it themselves and they should have had somebody else do it. But he's done a lovely job. Yeah, have you listened to mine on Audible? I mean, I just want to know if I did a good job or not. Indeed, thank you. <laughs> the thing is, there's just so many that I'm always dipping into. Is there one sort of 10 years ago or 20 years ago that if you thought back, when you went, ah? Um, yeah, I mean, actually, I've just seen a couple here that I quite enjoyed. I like, I like Michael Acton Smith's uh, Calm and what he's done with mindfulness. I think he's done a really interesting job. I've got Do Design here by Alan Moore, who's a mate of mine, which I really like. That's a really good book. If I go back 20 years ago about the stuff that opened up probably my head's more than anything else to understanding what could be. I really enjoyed, you know, Anthony Robbins, Awaken the Giant Within. And I thought that was one of the most practical books of helping people understand what their potential can be and un unleashing it. Mm -hmm. And although he's quite American in his, in his delivery and it's, you know, it's not my style, the actual intellectual property in it and his touch and feel around what makes people tick is just un unbelievable. Really good. 
so I really like that. And Richard Bandler in, the, in those days, I used to really enjoy as well. Okay. I was just thinking, Tony Robbins, did, did you see the documentary on Netflix? Mm. Yeah, I was just thinking about the energy where he goes and does the trampoline before he goes on stage just to make sure that his personal energy is at the right level to have the impact he wants as he walks on. Yeah, and he does yeah. the cold water too. Yes, he does, yes. So, so yeah, I've got a little trampoline outside. I, I, if, I, <laughs> if I have a negotiation to do, I put my headset on and I trampoline. And you know what? I never get stuck. You know, like when you get positioned when you negotiate? On a trampoline, you can't get positions. You can only find other possibilities. It's brilliant. <laughs> it's, a, it's a game changer. <laughs> There's your final top tip for the day. <laughs> yeah, we all need trampolines. Oh, fantastic. Chris, that is, that's magic. Thank you very much indeed for spending time with me today. It's a pleasure. All this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find show notes, additional reading and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pot newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively, not crap, once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting articles I've read, and all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. Social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments. Thanks for listening. <laughs>